organic wine, biodynamic wine, and natural wine. This week, we're talking wine in the Sonoma Valley of California. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we travel to a different foodie location and talk about the dishes and drinks that make that place special. And this time, it's all about wine. We're in the Sonoma Valley of California. And my guest this week is Sam Katuri. Sam is part of a legendary winemaking family. His father, Phil, was one of the pioneers of organic winemaking in California. And today, Sam and his brother Max, along with their father, Phil, own the great winery 16600. Sam also hosts the Winemakers Podcast, which is a great way to learn about wine in a casual atmosphere. Sam and I, we had a great talk about wine. We talk about organic wine, yeast, and something called Mega Purple. It's a fascinating conversation that gives you real insight into winemaking, both on large and on artisanal scales, like Sam's family. Plus, Sam talks about some of his favorite wineries, wine travel, and a memorable family reunion. But first, if you enjoy the podcast, take a moment to rate and review us, whatever platform you listen on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, they all allow you to rate what you listen to. So, Give up that five stars and share us with your friends. Destination Eat Drink. Sam Katuri, great to have you on Destination Eat Drink. You are uh, owner with your brother Max of uh, Winery 16600 and your father, uh, Phil Katuri. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the family and a little bit about your philosophy of winemaking. You know, my family has been in Sonoma Valley uh, since the early 60s. And, uh, you know, grew my, my dad grew up in San Francisco, um, family of uh, Italian immigrants who were barrel makers. Both of his grandfathers were, were coopers. Uh, so they always made wine and the family dream was always to, you know, have a piece of land and have a vineyard. So they, they made that happen in, in the sixties. And, um, so we're, we're farmers and we're grape growers, uh, in Sonoma, uh, who also have a little bit of a winery. So, you know, my dad, um, was, was one of the first organic grape growers, um, and the first person to make organic grape growing, um, you know, sort of make the scene, um, you know, and sort of be the the way to grow grapes, uh, to make wine for the, the finest wineries in Sonoma and Napa. Um, so with Winery 16600, we, we make wine from grapes that we grow at different vineyards all over Sonoma and, and, and Napa Valley, um, and really trying to show off the farming and the site and, and have the grape growing conversation with, with wine drinkers. Do you ever ask your father, uh, you know, your father was, he was really the pioneer of this organic grape growing, organic wine movement. Right. Do you ever ask him why organic? I mean, back then, no one was talking about growing grapes organically. When when my my grandparents bought this property in, on Sonoma Mountain, um, and my dad started going up there and working in the vineyards, um, there was a neighbor, 
a retired like army colonel um, who had a subscription to the very first like organic gardening journal, uh, magazine called Organic Gardening Journal, put out by a, a nonprofit in Pennsylvania, the Rodale Institute. And he gave my dad a crate full of this magazine that went back to like the fifties. And, um, so he started growing the garden there on the property, you know, with using compost and using cover crops and, and, um, you know, adding minerals instead of, uh, you know, and, and nutrients instead of, of, you know, commercial fertilizers and pesticides and was doing a garden that way. And, and it took until the late seventies, um, when somebody knew he was doing his gardens that way, um, to sort of transfer that to the vineyards and working in the vineyards by that time for 15 years. But he was, he was challenged to farm a 15 acre vineyard organically, um, because the, the family who lived on the property didn't want their kids playing in a vineyard where Roundup was sprayed. Right. And, right. you know, I, I tell this, I, I tell this story, you know, to people in the tasting room and, Everybody nods their heads because in, in 2020, I mean, just just like you said, Brent, and you you agree. 2020, we go, oh yeah, don't play in the roundup. Um, in '79, it was it was pretty forward thinking. So that's really kind of what's what launched all of this, and and what he found, and what the winemakers that he grew grapes for found was that farming organically made better tasting fruit and made better tasting wine. Um, you know, just like a, a chef will go to a farmer's market and find that perfect, ripe, organic tomato to make the best sauce, um, you know, winemakers, you know, looking for the same thing. Yeah, Sam, it makes better tasting grapes, makes better tasting wine, and makes for healthier workers who are not getting uh, poisoned right. by pesticides, too. Um, healthier workers, healthier waterways. You know, better neighbors um, all the way around. All kinds of benefits. So do you call the wine that you make organic? Do you call it natural? Do you call it bio? There's all these terms that are floating around. Yeah. What do you call what you do, and what are some of these other terms, and how are they different? Well, the thing that we focus on as far as um, you know, what labels we use, um, every vineyard that we farm is certified organic by the, the USDA and, and the California um, Certified Organic Farmers Organization. Um, so that's sort of the, the baseline that we work with across the board. As far as, you know, biodynamic, we have had properties certified biodynamic, and that's um, sort of a, a, a organic and beyond kind of approach. Um, it's a very, like, holistic look at an entire property, integrated systems, um, and and uh, emphasis on biodiversity. So you can get certified like that by different organizations, we just sort of incorporate those practices into our, into our farming. And then when you get into sort of natural wine, uh, that is a term that um, still lacks any um, specific agreed upon meaning. So, um, you know, we use native yeast fermentations in our wines, but we do use sulfites. So there's a, a camp that believes we could never call ourselves natural wine. Um, I, I don't actively go out and call our wine natural wine, um, but sometimes we get into that conversation because the most important piece of all of it to me, again, is is that it's organically certified organic grapes. And what does natural wine specifically mean? 
I mean, you said it's there's kind of nebulous what the definition is, but if you were to talk to a lay person like me, what would you say this is what a natural wine is? So the the purest sort of approach to what we can now call natural wine is the way that my uncle makes wine, uh, still at that property that my grandparents bought uh, in the 60s. And what he does is essentially does nothing to the grapes once they reach the the winery except for crush them, ferment them, press them, and put them in barrels. And in, in uh, you know, sort of the, the opposite of that is, you know, like a big commercial winery, they're adding sulfur, they're adding other, you know, nutrients and, and um, different chemicals all the way through from, from the moment the grape, you know, the grapes reach the winery to the moment the cork goes in the bottle. And most wineries, and especially most wineries that we work with, or sort of fall somewhere in the middle on that. And one of the things that sort of the the biggest uh, sort of rallying cry of the natural wine world is to not use sulfites um, or to not add sulfites in wine. Uh, sort of a preservative. Uh, but then many people who call themselves natural wine use them at the end. So um, for us, we use a little bit of sulfur. Um, and it keeps the wine biologically stable. Um, and it's something that's naturally occurring anyway. So um, that's, Kind of the, the crux of it is is whether you use sulfur and a whole bunch of other additives, but um, for the most part, it's about the sulfur. So you, you talk about these additives, and when you think of these big commercial wineries, and we know the names of all of them, when we think about these additives, are these additives to stabilize and preserve the wine, or are they for flavor reasons? Definitely both. You know, the, the dirty secret uh, of the California grape growing business is that almost the, the, the majority of grapes grown in California are go into the production of something called mega purple and not into the making of wine. And mega purple is like a, a, a syrupy color and sugar additive that um, many wineries use um, to kind of fix flaws that come in the grapes. And it's a, it's a grape concentrate, basically. Um, so all these grapes go into the production of that, and it's used, you know, it's used all over the world. But that's the one that, to me, like, is the, the Coca-Cola-ization of, huh, of yeah. wine, because, um, it, you know, it adds this sort of level of sweetness and, and even, like, sort of uh, stickiness to the wine. Um, but it also can cover, like I said, it can cover a lot of flaws. So that's something that, you know, isn't a, a product that we'll ever use um, because we have more control over the grapes that come in. Um, and I think that's kind of the bottom line is, is you don't, if you can't control your, your input product, then you, you know, have to go to all of these other products that are, you know, made in the lab to, to make your wine uh, you know, fit a category, which I think is sort of the goal of those wineries. You know, we, uh, me and my girlfriend's brother back in the day, we're going back over two decades now, we used to uh, buy grapes. Uh, this was back in Rhode Island, and there's a huge, you talk about your Italian family, huge Italian-American community in Rhode Island, uh, which a lot of people are surprised to find out. But anyway, we would go back, we would go to this uh, specific part of the city, and we would go and buy cases of grapes from... Italy and from California, and we would we would make our own wine. And you talk about things like stabilization and uniformity, and we didn't even add in any yeast, any commercial yeast. It was just the yeast that occurs naturally. And that's the thing. When you do that, you can come up with a spectacular bottle like 
I still remember the 99 Zinfandel that we made, but a lot of times you can make just rot gut, you know, because there, there's such a huge differential between what can happen one year to the next when you're dealing with these natural yeasts. Um, what's your, what's your viewpoint on uh, dealing with commercial yeast? How do, how do you deal with that? Our approach is that we, we prefer native yeast or natural yeast fermentation um, when at all possible. Um, you know, again, yeast population can get weird and, and you want to have some control over that. But, um, you know, we find that, again, this kind of goes back to the vineyard. If, if the vineyard ecosystem and, and biome is healthy, then the yeast population that comes in with the grapes is going to be healthy. And those yeasts are going to do the best job of fermenting your grapes that you can possibly find. Nothing, nothing made in a lab. Nothing that comes in a, uh, you know, mylar bag from Scott <laughs> Laboratories right. will will ever do as good a job as that. Um, that said, you know things go. This is you know you're dealing with nature. You're dealing with with you know random chance. Um, sometimes things get weird in the winery, and, and it's good to have. You know, to know that there are things out there that can help you get over those those obstacles when they come. Now, you're in Sonoma Valley, Sam, and yeah. of course, uh, Napa Valley is right next door to you. I've always felt that there's kind of a maybe a friendly rivalry, a, a brother, 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 brother rivalry in uh, Sonoma and Napa. You're living it on a day to day basis. Um, how, how do you see it uh, between Sonoma and Napa? I think that sometimes the rivalry element of it um, can get a little, a little overblown, you know, and especially mm-hmm. I think in Napa, they don't necessarily think of Sonoma as rivals as much as <laughs> Sonoma thinks Napa as rivals, uh, which can be frustrating too. Um, but, you know, I, I think friendly is, is probably um, the best way to describe it. You know, at the end of the day, people who come here or people who, seek out our wines wherever they, you know, wherever they are. Um, they're looking for Napa wines and Sonoma wines with sort of the same level of sort of within the same category in, the, in their minds. They're looking for, you know, Napa and Sonoma wine. Um, so, you know, I think that we joke about it a lot. You know, sometimes I joke that, um, you know, I can only get my passport stamped going into Napa County so many times a year, so <laughs> I, I can't get over that often. Um, but, you know, it's um, it's definitely something that, we talk about, but I think more the the consumers and and the visitors, um, you know, don't necessarily differentiate between a, a day spent in Napa Valley and a day spent in Sonoma Valley, except for they probably spent a little less money when they were in Sonoma. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. When it comes to Napa and Sonoma, you know, they're two different regions. They're two different wine regions. But, is there a uh, is there what's the difference between the terroir and are there grapes that thrive in Napa that don't in Sonoma and vice versa? Sort of the interesting thing that's happened with Napa, um, you know, especially in sort of the last 30 or 40 years, um, is it's become so Cabernet dominant um, that I think people can sometimes overlook other great things that it can do. Um, So, you know, when people think about Napa, you think about those really just like big, lush, rich Cabernets. Um, and Napa does a great job with that. Uh, but in similar to like Sonoma Valley and, and Sonoma County, because we have, you know, this bay, you know, the influence from the San Francisco Bay and from the ocean to our west, um, but also still get a, you know, a lot of sunshine, a lot of warm weather. 
um, you can find little sort of niche uh, microclimates all over the place that are going to do well with a, a bunch of different varieties. So, th- you know, that's kind of one of the cool things about, you know, Sonoma, uh, especially, um, is you can spend a day in Sonoma and go to three or four different wineries and taste 12 or 15 or 25 different varieties, both red wine, white wine, rosé. Um, so, you know, I, that's that's the one thing about it. It's sort of hard to define exactly, um, you know, what does the best here uh, because it, it can be so variable. Um, but I love personally um, some of the heritage varieties like Zinfandel and, um, and then um, the Rhone varieties like Grenache and, and Mavedra and Syrah uh-huh. um, that I think both in both Napa Valley and Sonoma Valley, you can find really good sort of niche little places for those varieties. So let's talk about some of those places. I, I won't ask you, Sam, what your favorite wineries are, because that's not fair, but tell us maybe a couple of places that you like, especially that you find are interesting or doing cool things in uh, Sonoma or, or even Napa, if you like. For me, and, and maybe this is just because of, I grew up in the mountains. Um, I, I always seek the mountain vineyard sites. Um, so that's kind of the first place I look is, is the mountain range that separates Sonoma Valley and Napa Valley, the Mayakamas mountains. And on the Sonoma side, uh, we call it the, the moon mountain district is a little sub Appalachian on the Napa side. It's called the Mount Vitor Appalachian. Um, and, and those are the places I sort of hone in on. One of the, the great legacy brands is Mayakamas, which, um, just a, another, you know, top five uh, wine spectator wine of the year. Um, you know, and that's a, a place that we farm. So, you know, and that's kind of how I zero in on things. You find the Appalachians that you like, and then I look for, you know, really good farming practices. Um, so that's that's kind of how I approach it. And I try not to only be biased towards places that we farm for, um, but I'm pretty biased towards places that we farm for. <laughs> How could you not be, right? Um, yeah. yeah. You guys have a tasting room in Sonoma. I, I got to assume you're not open right now because of the pandemic, but, um, right. you know, you, you go into you go into Napa and they have these palatial estates. In Sonoma, it's, my experience has been, I haven't been in a few years, but it's been, it's more low key. Um, it's more intimate. A lot of times you can actually talk to the folks who are uh, who are w- the winemakers themselves or folks who are working the land sure. themselves. Um, do you have a, a couple of favorite tasting rooms when this when this thing is over and we're able to go and travel again? Um, you know, your your tasting room, of course, should be at the top of the list, but maybe uh, one or two other places that folks could go and have a nice tasting room experience. Yeah, well, so first of all, you know, I will um, shameless plugs encouraged. Um you know, so the sixteen six hundred tasting house, which is um just off the plaza in Sonoma, that's that's our business. Um and what we offer is sit down, you know, sort of like hour and a half long comparative tasting experiences. And and I think that's sort of the best way to really sort of dig in onto a, a winery's style and, and production methods and, and, and lineup. So those are the kind of places that I look for more than, you know, sort of the traditional stand-up bar kind of tasting room venues. Um, sure. The only one that is a traditional kind of like stand-up is on the plaza that I go to is the Cayman Estate Tasting Room. But I love the way that Repri does it here in Sonoma, 
which is a you know a little bit more. It's not palatial, but it's you know a breathtaking estate in the mountains. Um, very you know high end tasting experience. You know, and, and then there's you know you can find places where you meet a winemaker. Um, you know, in the vineyard and, and taste his wine. You know, Bart Hansen, who I do a, a podcast with. You know, we'll, we'll meet you and do a tasting. I have some other friends that like source and sink wines, who will meet you in a, in a vineyard and do a tasting. So mm-hmm. there's there's definitely um, a way to have a whole bunch of different experiences when when you come here, which um, you know keeps it interesting and fun too. Sam, when I talk to other travel writers, not necessarily with wine specifically, but with other travel writers, one of the questions I like to ask them is, uh, when you go on like a pleasure vacation, uh, a vacation where you're just going to unwind, is it difficult for you to shut off what I call the uh, travel writer brain? In other words, can you actually enjoy the place that you're going? Um, So I'm going to ask you, when you're drinking for pleasure, when you're just going out and having a glass of wine... Can you shut off your winemaker brain? Can you forget about tasting notes and just sit there and enjoy it and not think, okay, the winemaker did this, the winemaker did that? Is that part of your brain always going to be switched on? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I'm I'm not a process-dominated person as far as the winemaking side goes. So, I, I you know, I, I think um, what I'm always looking for when I taste wine is, A, it's supposed to be pleasurable. So... I'm, I'm, right. whether I'm chasing professionally or, or not, I'm, I'm looking for the pleasure element of it. Um, so I, you know, I don't think that there's necessarily a line between when I'm tasting either our wine or other wine professionally, um, and, and maybe drinking a, a bottle of wine at home or drinking a bottle of wine, you know, at a dinner or something like that, which is something that we used to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so what I'm looking for is, you know, obviously I want, I'm looking for it tasting good. Um, you know, the other things I'm looking for are whether, you know, it's a good example of the, of the variety or of the, of the region and, or if it's a unique example of the variety of the region. Um, and all those things, you know, and all the different things that you look for when you taste wine, all the different flavor elements, um, for me, are part of the fun and and pleasure of drinking wine there's you know so many ranges of experiences and and differences and unique characteristics because of where it was grown and the vintage it's from and and the variety and how it's made that sort of like innate innate curiosity um takes over um whether you know again whether it's a, a professional tasting or a, a you know actual uh, at home sipping and drinking you mentioned earlier that your family is originally from Italy. Wouldn't be hard to figure out with your last name, Katuri. Um, my uh, my girlfriend, her family is originally from Italy. A few years ago, we went over and visited the little, 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 little town, little sheep herding town that she was from. Have you gone back to the uh, to the motherland and visited where your grandparents or great grandparents came from? I have not for a long time, but so the the Katuri family is from a, a small town near Lucca um, oh. called, called Farnetta. I was just writing about Lucca today before I got you on the line. I was just writing about a time when we were in Lucca and how much we loved it there. So cool. I, I, I love I love Lucca. Um, although the sleeper town in, you know, in the Tuscany is, is not Lucca. Lucca's great. But San Gimiano, which also has a wall but has these amazing towers at the 
place I'd recommend next time. Next time we can all travel again when they let us in, uh, go there. Excellent. But so I, I have visited there, but we're actually in touch with our Swiss Italian relatives in, in Ticino, in the Italian speaking province of, of Switzerland. Um, so we, you know, in normal years, um, a group of, of that family, the Levantinis come through and, and visit in Sonoma. And when we get over there, no matter where we go in Europe, you have to go to Switzerland for a couple of days and say hi to those folks. So they're in Switzerland, but they have Italian heritage. Right. Swiss, Switzerland's not exactly known as a winemaking country, but knowing the Italians the way I do, I'm going to guess that they find a way. Um, do, do they do they grow grapes? Do they make wine? There is there is wine and and grapes in Switzerland. These relatives. Um, are more on the hospitality side, uh, restaurants in, and like ski chalets and, uh, cheese making, I believe. But, um, so although, although when we went to a family reunion one time, I do remember this when I was really young, we had a family, the first time we went over there and all these different cousins and stuff showed up and, um, somebody gave us a couple of bottles of like their homemade Rafa, which was, um, ah, yeah. as I recall, as, a, as like a, a young teenager, um, pretty pretty fiery stuff. <laughs> got a little, got a little taste of that, and uh, it was all yeah, over. That's all it took. <laughs> So when when you travel, you know one of the things we like to do when we travel is we go to different winemaking regions. You know, we've been to Bordeaux and. Chateauneuf de Pop and places like that, all over Italy. Are there any uh, winemaking? Some of your favorite winemaking regions, maybe that you visited over the years. Sounds like you've spent some time in Europe. You know, I haven't spent any time in France, which is is really sort of like the biggest um, hole in my wine traveling experience, um, and that's you know, something that I was hoping to rectify this year. Obvious for obvious reasons. Uh, those plans are on hold, but you know, so what I really want to do is spend a couple of weeks basically going from coastal Spain and wine growing regions through, you know, uh, you know, the Mediterranean coast of, of France. And then from there kind of going North in different little spurs, Chateau de Pop, which you mentioned is, is on that list. Um, so, you know, as far as going to Europe, that's, on, that's, kind of where I'm on that, but um, I really actually enjoy spending time in central coast of, of California. Um, you know, I know it's it's sort of weird that I wouldn't I'd just go down the road a little bit, but, um, you know, you go down to the Paso Robles and, and San Luis Obispo area, you stay in Morro Bay out on the coast, and, and you have access to a whole bunch of different, um, you know, wine and, and grape growing regions. Um and people who are doing really good stuff. So, um, and then it's also, you know, you're halfway to LA and you can go do those things too. So, um, you know, that's a lot of my, what my life sort of local wine travel. Well, Sam Katuri, a pleasure to talk to you. I love digging deep into the winemaking philosophy that you guys have at your winery with your brother and your father. It's been great talking to you. Uh, we'll have linked to your podcast and to your uh, website for the winery in the show notes so people can check that out. And uh, hopefully we'll be coming to visit you real soon with uh, the light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic. Yeah, well, we look forward to, uh, you know, Life getting back to a little bit of normal here and, and hosting friends and throwing parties because at the end of the day, um, you know, that's what we're in this business for. So um, we, we look forward to uh, seeing you in person, Brent. Thanks for having me. 
I'll tell you, I love geeking out on wine. I mean, I know a little bit about wine, just enough to be dangerous or more specifically, just enough to make a fool out of myself. But Sam, that guy is the real deal. He's out there doing it at the highest level day in and day out. Check out the show notes at radiomisfits.com for the links to his website and Sam's podcast, The Winemakers, and the places he talked about in Sonoma. Well, that puts a wrap on it for this week. Next week, we're in Argentina for pizza, that famous Argentine steak, and doing the tango. Until then, check out DestinationEatDrink.com. My blog has something new each week. This week, I talk about the lychee fruit. It's from China originally. I ate it a lot when I was in Hawaii, and you can learn more about it at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and our podcaster pro tem, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.